Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. All right, all right, all right, all right. Here we go. Today on the Talent Tank, we're back at it. I've got, you know, the most mysterious man in Ultra 4 racing to cap off the this fall season of Ultra 4 and the Talent Tank. Man, I've got Paul Horschel on the show today. Paul, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Glad to tell my story. Yeah. I guess everybody thinks I'm mysterious, but... Well, I don't know I don't if really it's mysterious. So. It, it's just people just don't know, so they fill in the blanks. Yeah, I'm just a normal guy. Uh, loves racing. Have a family. Doing what I love. Well, that you do, man. And you build some amazing race cars and you're self-taught. And I mean, I've really been looking forward to sitting down with you and, and, you know, spending a couple hours with you getting, getting kind of your story captured, I guess. I mean, you're the driver of the number 19, 4,400 car, bright orange says Nitto down the side. Yeah. Um, (laughs) that's, that's definitely me racing is a whirlwind, uh, Everybody listening. So we hit some, some tech snags, you know, Paul and I talked at nationals in Oklahoma a few weeks ago and I handed him one of the, the Pelican cases, the interview kits that I hand out. And tonight, you know, well, let's back up a little bit. A few weeks ago before Baja, we went to record and the power went out at your house and the internet was out at your house. And then we ended up not being able to record at all. You went to Mexico and it's crazy. My notes. We're like, hey, you know, what's next? You know, here at the very end, you know, hey, what's next for you? You know, win Baja, right? Because you're getting ready to go to Baja. Well, you won Baja. Yeah, that was the goal. So somehow it came out that way, but which is amazing to go down there and win Baja first time. But yeah, that was the goal. It was pretty crazy getting ready for Baja. Just, I mean, it was just nonstop. We had, I think it was about, I don't even know. I mean, I think it was two weeks after nationals. And then we went to Moab also in between there for four days, go do some rock crawling. I mean, it was straight changing motors and changing transmissions, prepping the car, you know, just one thing after another. It's been like a whirlwind for the last like six weeks. Yeah. That- to go down to Winnebaha is pretty amazing. It's, it's like my childhood dream and to get that done. Pretty cool. You took your two seater down there. You teamed up with another known, a known fellow that we all know and love, Lauren Healy. Yeah, Lauren. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty good match. He's a little bigger than me, so he kind of had to squeeze in the car. But you know, we kind of have the same sponsors with Nitto, and Lauren's been down in Baja a few times. It, it made a lot of sense to go down there with Lauren because he, you know, had a chase truck, brought a bunch of spare parts. He drives one of my other cars, so he's kind of used to the car. He wasn't going to get a lot of seat time in before hopping in, you know? Right. Yeah. He has a single seater that he got off you, but this was, you guys were racing a two seater. That's correct. He was racing in my two seater or we were both racing in the two seater, but which has the same front IFS as the car that Lauren is racing currently. Characteristics are the same or similar. It's similar. Yeah. It's a bigger, it's a little bit bigger car, but. You know, not too much. Just holds a little more fuel, set up for two guys. He definitely wouldn't want to go down the Baja and race as a single seater. At least I wouldn't. I'd probably blow every corner down there. <laughs> just staying in it. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just a lot of corners. I mean, it's just, they say this Baja was the toughest Baja yet. 
which was, it, it was just corner after corner after corner. I mean, it was just nonstop for a thousand miles or 900 miles. I mean, it was just a lot crazy. of turns, just a lot of turns. Were, were there a lot of steering pump failures? Did you notice anything like that on guys or rack failures on other cars? Yeah, there was quite a few. I think the Menzies truck broke the rack or the, our pump was pretty much toast by the time it got to the finish line. It was whining pretty good. So, but it made it. I didn't notice anything in the car as we got there, but I could hear a noise coming in the truck about mile 800. And then uh, when we got to the finish line, it was definitely needs to rebuild. And then you guys kind of had some ringers on chase crews. You guys had like Dave Cole and his guys. Yeah, Dave Cole has been really awesome. Uh, he's always told me, whenever you want to go to Baja, just let me know. And I've always kind of kept that in the back of my head. And, you know, and then this year with COVID and the whole not racing, it, it just kind of made sense for me to go race Baja this year. Most years were too busy to go race. So it, it made a lot of sense for us to go. And it Dave wasn't doing anything. So it was like made a lot of sense. It was just like, okay, let's – uh he just wanted to come help and you know he's won baja he knows all about baja we we just don't know anything we just go down there and we're just a couple of guys going down there to hit the race course you know drink beer <laughs> tacos but I, I didn't even do any of that i didn't eat any tacos and i didn't drink any beer because my focus is racing and i can't have a bad gut oh i gotta i gotta sacrifice the tacos so, <laughs> <laughs> I I saw a video and man, you're going to laugh when you hear that I've seen this, but Will Gentile sent me a video months and months and months ago when we were talking about you and it's, they're interviewing you for something. And, and they said, you have two choices. You're almost to the finish line. You're in first place and you have to take a dump. You got to take a number two. And it's like, do you number two in your, in your fire suit or, or do you hold it? Like how bad do you hold it? And you were just, no, no, no. It was, do you take it in, in your fire suit or do you get out? You pull off and, you know, go hide behind a cactus or something. And you said, you said I'd hold it. And they said, that's not an option. <laughs> it is an option. What's crazy is we raced for the first 450 miles and I didn't take a piss the whole time. I can't pee in a race car. I can drink water. When I get out, I pee like five gallons. <laughs> it just and my, bla- my bladder was just killing me. I was like, what's wrong with my stomach? I thought it was all the bumps. And then I I got out of the car and I was talking to my wife. And I was like, yeah, my stomach. And she was like, well, it's probably your bladder. <laughs> it's probably entirely full. And she's for, fully qualified know. to give you that that advice, too. We'll talk, to, we'll talk about your wife here in a little bit. But she's a doctor. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, but it's crazy that, I mean, I can... I physically can't pee while I'm driving the race car. So I don't think I'd have a problem holding it. I just, you know, the, you somehow just hold it in. I guess it's just, you're just so tense or I'm so tense driving, you know, corner to corner that I just don't have the time to do it. Hey, that's fair. I, I, I get that. I don't have a, I don't have a problem going in the race car. Like I can, which you never know. It's, you never know till you're in that situation. Can you go or not go? And I have, turns out I have no problem going full wide open throttle in a turn. Just th- all I have to do is think about it for a split second. Like, yeah, I could go to the bathroom and it goes. And then there's those guys can't go at all or they have to be stopped. And we just, I just talked about this with Pam Hall a few weeks ago, you know, about women. 
going to the restroom in the car and how does that how does that work and that was five minutes uh, of uh of hilarity i was laughing most of it yeah how does that work <laughs> uh they they really only have one option <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well they better hope they're like me they can handle it for 450 miles of <laughs> you know I think that was the longest i've ever done it that, yeah i mean that's so figure what were you guys averaging 50 50 miles 50 miles an hour was no average? this baja this baja was really technical i think it was low 40s low 40s I mean, it was yeah it was so that put it you was 11 12 hours without a piss i think i think it was about 11 hours before we got out 11 11 and a half or something before we got out that's a marathon man that's awesome. And I, I really can't take a piss until like probably about 30 minutes after I get out and then I can, you know, I calm down and I can just go pee like normal, but it's just, I don't know what it is, but. Isn't the human body interesting in that regard? I mean, I don't know. Do you think it's physical or do you think it's mental or both? I think it's, I think it's definitely mental. I think it's just, I can't slow my mind down enough because there's these speed zones in Baja where you get on the highway for 10 miles at 37 miles an hour. But everybody would think that, Oh yeah, it's perfect time to take a piss. But the problem is you got to go 37 miles an hour. You don't want to go 36 because someone's going to pass you at 37. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? If you start, so you're really focused on that speedometer. So there really wasn't a time in Baja where you weren't focused. It was even in the speed zones when you're just cruising on the highway, you were still mentally focused on doing your job. You know, so it's just, I think I focus so much on that stuff that I just, all the other stuff just gets put on hold. Yeah, I think that's fair. Right. So was, was Mitch sweet, your, uh, your co-driver Mitchell sweat. Yeah. He, yeah. uh, drove, well, we drove the first 450 together and then Lauren drove 250 Lauren and, uh, my friend Zig, Mitch and I hopped back in for the last 250. Oh, nice. Nice. So you, you actually handled a, a big majority of the race and Lauren only lifted the middle 250 ish. Yeah, no. So we hopped back in for the last 200. So I drove 650. He drove 250. Yeah. I mean, Dave, Dave was like, are you sure you want to do this? You know, you're sure you want to jump back in the car after like, you know, four or five hour nap. And I'm like, dude, this is what I'm meant to do. This is what I, you know, I don't even want to get out of the car, but I'll tell you what, after going four, 50 i was i was looking forward to lauren getting in the truck <laughs> and, and it worked out so what was your lead what was your split time lead at the 450 when you got out do you know at this point we didn't pre-run the first i think it was about 40 miles of the race course and shannon actually passed us in a speed zone so i don't know how all that works but right at the end of a speed zone he went around us so we just basically followed in in behind him and just cruised i mean dave was constantly calling me on the radio just just keep going don't try to pass them you know just just go so we just cruised and at mile 420 or 410 ish he was doing a driver change with waylon and at that point dave was calling me on the radio telling us we're you know less than a mile back just don't try and pass them it's not worth it so we pulled in there they were swapping drivers we went by them and uh we actually driver changed at 450 ish it just made sense better sense for fueling and when we driver changed dave said we had a four and a half minute gap to do the driver change 
they had some fueling issues with some redheads. So at that point, Lauren was in the car. He's like, can I go? Can I go? Can I go? And they were having some issues with some redheads. This is one of the only pits we didn't have a tower at. And I think a redhead was seized up or something like that on the dump can. And they wanted to get enough gas in it. But Shannon, or actually it was Waylon at that point, ended up passing us in the driver changed error. Then Lauren pretty much peeled out right after him. And then did they, they had trouble before Lauren, you know, Lauren actually took overtook him, right? I think it was, I mean, it was pretty, pretty soon. They, I mean, like within 15, 15 minutes of Lauren driving, they, they must've hit something and popped a tire as Lauren got around them. And um, we didn't see him anything after that. I think it was, they made it probably about 500 miles in the race. And I think they broke the rear output of the car. You know, our whole game plan was just to drive smart, don't hit any big holes, you know, drive, just keep a good car. And I think it paid off. And Lauren is great in, in a desert race. He's very good. Rocks, he, he'll he tell you, you know, his Achilles heel was rocks. Well, Baja doesn't have solid rocks. And, you know, the, the, some of the washes have some pretty nasty stuff in them. Well, I didn't pre-run Lauren's part, but I think he had some rough stuff back there because they were complaining about it. <laughs> <laughs> they had all that, you know, down by San Felipe, which is pretty rough. He did take out a drive shaft again, so I don't think he can go out of, go to any race without putting a new drive shaft in. Well, I'd heard him say something about he he, he had experimented with some uh, carbon fiber stuff at, you know, sometime last year, and he was shredding those. So I think he's back to non-carbon, right? Yeah, he's back to non-carbon. But this drive shaft, he didn't actually, he didn't actually hit something with it. It was just a. We were planning to grease it every two fifty, and somehow when I went to sleep, it did, it got passed up on the grease. So our trucks have a little more plunged than a typical desert truck, so we try and keep the drive shaft greased. And it was just getting a little hot on Lord, so he had to ch- pull over and change it. Gotcha. Another funny story is he ended up getting stuck out in the desert, leaving the pit. I think it was right after the drive shaft change, actually. He got, <laughs> he sunk the car right to its axles, right in front of the pit truck, which uh, I don't know if it was his fault <laughs> he or just not. Stopped, but he, he just stopped on soft sand and then wooded it to pull away. Well, the story is so earlier in the night, they broke a CV boot and sand I'd got up into the upper CV on one side of the front. And they ended up cutting the drive shaft or the CV axle out. So one of the front drives was out and we're running an ARB in the truck. So you just run open. Yeah. So we're running it open. So which is essentially two wheel drive at that point. So he pulls in for the drive shaft and Dave tells him, you know, well, actually Dave's telling him where to pull in for the drive shaft, but it turns out that Dave pulled in and got stuck. So that's where he told Lauren to go. So Dave, <laughs> <laughs> Dave's chase truck was already stuck. He says, Lauren, just pull right over here next to me. Cause that's where we're going to do the drive shaft chain because I'm not going anywhere else. <laughs> so when Lauren tried to leave, he was in two wheel drive and just sunk it. Oh, terrible. Okay. So I, I did see, uh, I did see pictures of the, of the chase truck sunk. I didn't realize that that was the whole story that you guys did a pit during that too. And then I did know that you guys had to cut that, uh, that half shaft off, you know, in between the two CVs and that seemed to be the, the right way to go. Right. I mean, no reason to pull everything apart when 
Well, our whole game plan with the front end was if anything goes wrong, just cut it out. You know, I think Lauren must have hit something and shoved some rocks up into the CV boot to cut it out, but or to you know cut the boot. Was it the inboard uh, one or the outboard? The inboard CV. So when the when the car's up full bump, that CV is actually pretty close to the ground, and it could rocks and everything could fly up in there. Yep. So. They ended up cutting it out. Our plan was just to unbolt it, which was basically cut the boots and then just stick an impact in there and you can unbolt it in, you know, five minutes, but cutting it works too. It just sling grease everywhere. Did it get grease yeah. on the side of the car? Oh, uh, there's grease everywhere. It's, yeah. a, it's a race car. <laughs> well, man, congratulations. I mean, one, I, I know there's a lot of jealous people on this deal that, uh yeah it's your first time in, in in baja and you win the thousand in your class that's uh that says something all right that's so uh, yeah. yeah it's pretty amazing you know well actually that car and me and mitch were two for two in baja because we won the king of baja last year in that car too or yeah the so san felipe race yeah 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 that car's two for two in mexico so it's kind of a bummer we're going to be cutting it up and using it as a pre-runner pretty soon Eh, you, but you, you just build other ones. I know, I know how you work. Yeah. I, I know, I know how Mitch works as well. Uh, you guys just keep cranking them out. And then, uh, and then we'll don't talk about your single seater that you've been, that you've been racing the last, you know, eight weeks or so. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. Cause that's, uh, there's a lot going on with that nationals. We talked at nationals, you missed, you know, winning that race by 30 seconds. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what I think it was in the twenties or thirties. Um, yeah, it was. Well, I lost, I think I lost four races this year under 30 seconds, which was kind of a bummer. That's, that was, I mean, that was the number four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you can't win them all, but you know, some of them, we always look back and like, what did we do here? What did we do here? And a lot of them is just like, you know, this is what we did and it was our fault, but you know, it's tough on some of those races with lap traffic. It just, it plays a huge part. Eric just won that race. I mean, I just couldn't pass the lap traffic that was ahead of me. Well, and then Blyler, you know, blowing the infield double that confusion and how, you know, he ends up throwing away the national championship on a, a, a navigate, a navigation error. Yeah. I, you know, I, that's one thing. The focus of racing is when you're focused so hard on racing, sometimes you make those bad judgments or bad judgment calls. like. Did I go around the start finish? Did I not go around the start finish? That race is kind of confusing, but I have my guys, you know, they're like, I come out of those woods and it's like, did you make sure you go around the start finish? And then you went around the start finish. <laughs> now you're heading to the woods or now you're heading to there. I mean, there, we just don't take any chances on that sort of thing. I mean, I, you just, the more information to the driver, the better, because the driver is really focused, you know, on racing. So it, the stuff comes up on you really quick and it's just a split second, turn right, turn left. You know, it's just, you have to have somebody there to help you do that stuff. And it got a bunch of people, it, it got some people in the UTV race. I don't know if it got anybody in the EMC race, but when it happened, it gets Blyler. people every year and I'm just like, how do these people do it? But I could, you know, one of these days it might even get me. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> like we hope not, right? Knock on, knock on the wood. Yeah. But I mean, that race was, was pretty cool. I mean, it was, you know, that new car is working great. It's just, you know, when it comes down to, I think we had about a three minute lead on Eric 
going into the woods and I knew I could hold the same pace as him through the woods. So I did going into that lap. They told me I had a three minute lead. I could hold the same pace and I would win the race. No problem. But you know, with lap traffic, I just got held up probably about three minutes, three and a half minutes. And that was it. It was enough to take it out. Yeah. I ended up going up that waterfall thing and sliding backwards behind the guy and Oh, that was, was horrible. That, that that thirty degree or forty degree up to your right out of the creek. Yeah, you kind of go out of a creek and you know you start going up the hill. You, you kind of go up this rock face and go back around. And you know a lot of these guys don't hit the stuff with speed. And if you follow too close, I I really hate following people. But when you're trying to pass people, That's sometimes you have to in. follow them until it opens up. But you know it it sure be nice if these guys would just try to move out of the way since they're a whole lap down you know what i mean it's just don't hold up the leaders yeah i mean a couple people told me i just got to start using the front bumper more and that's my plan for this year it's just i just have to it just costs me too many races to to not use the front bumper well there's everybody's warning right there you just put it out there yeah i'm gonna start hitting people but i mean but but let's just be very serious and honest about this the 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 fun it, it is fun for you uh but the business side of it is you had four four times this year you were out of first place by less than 30 seconds. Four times. Yeah. Well, the first two, I definitely lost to Lauren. It was new car set up and stuff like that. But the second two, well, the last one was definitely lap traffic. And this, uh, the one in Moab was definitely lap traffic. But it was also some errors on our pit side of things. You know, we were just trying to keep that three-minute gap. So they had me going really slow for three laps. My guys were just saying, you know, go slow, go slow, go slow. And then they weren't keeping track of the Gomez brothers who were coming up pretty quick behind me. And by the time I got the call on the last lap, which laps were taken, you know, I think I did a lap there in 16 minutes. By the time they told me on the last lap, I had to make up two minutes. It just wasn't possible. I think it was possible, but I just got hung up, you know by a guy that was a lap down and a pretty fast guy but he was you know 80 percent my speed making a bunch of dust and i just couldn't get couldn't around take the chance yeah i couldn't take the chance because it's so tight there to get around people oh, that's and it just took me took me four or five miles to get around them and then by that time i can't make up two minutes well you know, so let's uh let's let's talk about paul you know let's talk about who who you are outside of the racing world and then we'll we'll, we'll go through some stuff and then we'll circle back to racing but currently you know you're sitting tonight you you're over in park city utah where you live uh family but uh you you grew up uh alaska right yeah i was born in fairbanks alaska um lived in a little town about 100 miles south of there called delta junction alaska right on the tanana river alaska is an amazing place growing up I went to school as this in the same grade as my older brother. So my older brother was a year older than me, but due to difficulties with my mom, not being able to drive a car and my dad working up in the oil fields, it was just, it just made sense for him to put us both in the same grade. Okay. So, so, you know, he was five and I was four when we went to kindergarten and um, we went all the way through high school in Delta. Um, you're from a pretty big family too. I think, you know, you, you told me six sisters, two brothers or yeah, is that right? Yeah. I got, uh, my mom and dad, um, they still live up in Delta junction. My mom runs a little restaurant up there. 
I have six sisters and two brothers. I have Lydia, my youngest, Stephanie, Phoebe, Anna, Esther, and Claudia, who is older than me. Then I got a younger brother, Luke, and my older brother, Abe, who I went to school with. We're all spread out now, but most of them still live up in Alaska. You have a place up there now, don't you? Yeah, we ended up buying a place that I actually, when I was about 13 or 14, it was a big, huge log place on this big piece of property that I actually peeled the logs for and sanded the logs when I was you know, going to high school and building. And the guy ended up dying probably six or seven years ago, and we ended up buying the place. So it's kind of right, cool. right in between my wife's house, where the house where my wife grew up, and the house where I grew up. So it's kind of it's kind of cool to go back there and relax. It's 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 on a creek and a river, and we got about 154 acres or so up there. So it's pretty cool to go up there and you know do whatever you want. Yeah, and and now I mean, living in Park City, I saw you know I was looking you know looking at your stuff that you have on Instagram. But you guys had a, I think you guys were getting ready for a race. Chase trucks are in the driveway, and a moose walks like, like I think it was like Mitch. I think Mitch is like standing on a chase truck, and then like the moose just like walks by him. Yeah, we're well growing up in Alaska. I'm used to moose, so they they don't really scare me or bother me. I mean, moose were everywhere up there. They're like deer. But down here in Utah in general, they're not around as much. But up where we live, we're kind of up on this ridge, and we see moose probably at least once a week. And I've oh, wow. I've got pictures of five moose at one time in my backyard. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So as I was walking in the room here to uh, to get on the phone with you and, and, and get this going tonight, I was telling my wife, you know, who you know oh who are you interviewing and i i said you know paul horschel you know what he lives in park city and we're sitting here uh we're booking spring break you know our kids actually now have a two-week spring break coming up and it was we're gonna fly to salt lake no matter what but it was between park city and jackson hole and once the kids were shown all the different activities jackson hole won out so sorry we're not gonna come see you in, in march or maybe we will i don't know but yeah, the current plan is uh, to go up to, to Jackson Hole, but Park City was in the mix, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So Paul lives in Park City, and I looked at the kids. I go, he has a ski lift in his backyard. He installed his own ski lift, and they're like, what? Who has that? I'm like, we have a 175-foot zip line in my backyard, but not a ski lift. So tell me about this. Tell me about your place there in Park City with a ski lift. How cool is that? Well, we don't quite have the ski lift up yet, oh. but- it's it's always been the dream of mine since I was well I was into snowboarding so I always wanted to give my kids that experience but it's always been like a dream of mine to have a ski lift in the backyard and we ended up buying this piece of property on a big hill so we ended up picking up two rope toes this summer and we got one of them in we still got to put the cable on it and I'm doing some uh, modifications to the electric motor right now to get it to work the second one I just with Baja racing and I mean it's just it's just too time consuming because we physically had to go clear lift lines and you know ski trails so I was running an excavator up in there just pretty much opening the mountainside up <laughs> just to make this happen so and it'll, it'll be yeah then winter happens so now we got snow on the ground so we'll have the one ski lift done and running this year but the second one will be probably next year before we get it in all right, I'm inviting myself already. It's going to be a fun time. Um, <laughs> I got a 
I got a snow cat too. I got a little preen off snow cat that we bought so we can um, go out and, you know, build jumps, whatever you want to do. So yeah, I want to send you, we'll send you down on a inner tube. Well, that works. Yeah. I I want to talk about your, your snow cats here in a little bit for sure. Sorry. We did get ahead. Yeah. So, so your wife and you, you both grew up in Delta junction, which is, you know, half about what halfway between Fairbanks and, and Anchorage. Um, I'd say it's uh, a little closer, a quarter, quarter of the way. Cause it's, we're about hundred miles to Fairbanks and about three fifty to Anchorage. Oh, is it that far by, by the, yeah. by the roadway, you know, road miles. But so. it, and that was my next question. How much did you fly? Basically everyone says that if, if you live in Alaska, you just fly everywhere. I didn't fly anywhere until I was probably 18 or so or 20. I mean, we drove everywhere. We just didn't leave Alaska. So basically, when I graduated school when I was 17 and my brother was 18, we hopped in a car and we drove to Utah. We didn't know a soul in Utah, much less in the lower 48. Um, we were just two kids in a car. And we we looked at magazines and we were like, we were all into snowboarding. So we looked at all these, it was before internet and all this stuff, you know, this is early nineties, you know, late. So like <laughs> early, well, outside magazine and well, like snowboarding magazines. Okay. And we're like, we, we would just look at the stats of the lifts. Like, Oh, this gear area has, you know, 3000 vert. Oh, this one has, you know, it gets this much snow. So we just, you know, it was all about the statistics and we were just like, okay, we're going to Utah. So we just hopped in a car, didn't have much else to do. You know, we, well, crazy thing is I worked all summer and he did too, but I was 17 and he was 18. So I kind of like got this job that I wasn't supposed to have, but they paid a lot of money and they didn't ask me how old I was. So <laughs> we, we had a big pile of cash. So we just, you know, we're moving to Utah. So we just drove down to Utah. And was that 1994? 1994. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean, we were just two kids. I mean, now looking back at some of the stories and, I mean, there's one, we moved to Utah and we didn't know anything about Utah. You know, we'd never been outside of Alaska. So we go, we go to Utah and we, it says Salt Lake City. So we go to Salt Lake City and we start trying to find a place to live. So we find this, you know, rundown motel, like 700 South State Street that we're staying at, you know, and to us, it was pretty nice, but. It was just like this little, you know, one story, like roach motel. (laughs) It was definitely a roach motel. So termites holding hands, right? We didn't even know. The only, the only clue we got was we were trying to rent a house and we had all this money, but we didn't have any credit cards. We didn't have any, you know, references or anything. It was just a couple kids. Right. So nobody would rent us a house. And finally this one lady, she told us, she was like, you know what? I'm not going to rent you this house, but let me give you a hint. Don't put that hotel on your application because nobody's going to rent you a house if you're staying at that hotel. Fair enough. So, That's good yeah. advice. That, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just, we were just two kids, you know, it's just, it's just crazy looking back at it that how we made it all work. But it's a great story. So what was the first job you guys got? And what, what did you guys do when you first got down here to the lower 48? Well, when I was 17 and he was 18 that summer, we worked uh, as firefighters. So, and firefighting paid pretty good back then. And then when we moved to Utah, I got a job as a lift operator at Snowbird. And uh, 
Ran left over there. It just allowed us to go. We were just into snowboarding. So whatever it took to go snowboarding um, and we picked Snowbird as we'd never been there, but it was just, you know, statistically a good place. So we just started going snowboarding there. You know, so you were always, you're always into snowboards, but I know you were, you know, based on how you are today, you've kind of always been into anything with a motor, right? I've been into motors. I think it was about 2000 or uh, sorry, 1984 when my dad bought a, he came home with a Honda big red three wheeler. I don't know if you remember those. Oh yeah. Murder machines. Absolutely. <laughs> no, susp- the suspension was the tires. Yeah. It was, yeah, no suspension in the back and it had low range in it. It had the high, low, you know, shaft drive. It was like awesome. So I started driving that when I was seven years old. It was because no one else liked to drive. Like my brother, my older brother and older sister didn't want to drive. They were like, Paul, you drive. And I was like, okay, I like to drive. So I'll drive. All right. But <laughs> I ended up getting hit by a car, <laughs> broke my leg. I was seven years old. I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but. Ever since then, I was just into into motors and into motorcycles. I, I probably started driving motorcycles when I was ten. You know, we didn't have much money, so it was, we just had cheap dirt bikes that we could you know pick up for five hundred dollars or whatever. And we always we always tried to modify them to go. You know, we always you know looked at other people's bikes and like, why is this guy? You know, he's got this bike and it's so much faster. So we would just try and modify our bikes to be faster. You know, because. They were always the dual shock bikes versus, you know, the mono shock bikes you know, back right. in the day. But we'd always put bigger shocks on them. I remember on my three wheeler cutting the whole front end off of it and putting putting shocks on it, you know, motorcycle forks on the front end. Probably when I was thirteen years old. Just a better suspension, you know, go faster. Solving problems. It's, yeah. It's what year did you get into snowmobiles? Were you already down, you know, living in Utah by snow, snowmobiling, or was that actually something that you guys you were around in Alaska? I was around snowmobiling in Alaska, but you know, I couldn't really. I never got a snowmobile until I was probably about thirteen years old, just because they were too expensive. Finally, my parents bought me a used snowmobile. Ended up blowing the motor in it, working on just working on it a lot, but it was a good project, and I didn't really. Alaska, everybody thinks Alaska as, as like big, huge mountains and stuff. But where we grew up was more flatlands. The big mountains were there, but the access was just too hard to get to. So we just rode snowmobiles, you know, in the fields and stuff like that. But um, I didn't get into mountain snowmobiling until I moved down to Utah and was down here. And then we wanted to go out and go snowboarding up in the bigger mountains behind the ski lifts and it was like well let's just get us you know snowmobile so we got into snowmobiling that way but kind of back into snowmobiling that way and you know having the snowboarding background of like let's go down this chute you know and then we got snowmobiles and it was like let's go up this chute you know so it was like <laughs> it was a whole new whole new ball game to try and just like rock crawlers that like break a trail for the first time and they get to name the trail you've done some shoots some pretty gnarly climbs and you've got to name some climbs yeah it's you know we broke a lot of climbs down here in utah and up in canada even too and it's it's pretty amazing where these sleds will go i mean most people won't even they, they don't even look at the up at the mountainside to, to actually see the shoe because their snowmobiles can't even go up there it's kind of like rock crawling like if you are extreme rock crawler you look at different stuff you know what i mean Whereas if you're a trail wheeler, you don't look at the extreme rock on the side of the trail and try and get your buggy over it. But that's yeah. kind of where we took snowmobiling was into that extreme 
area of like shoots you know we went i mean we pretty much for three or four years it was find every shoot and climate it was in utah nevada um everywhere obviously you always need more horsepower so then that parlayed into you doing some work developing some turbo kits because you you can't leave well enough alone no no knowing uh knowing well Paul. it's it's always uh yeah need more horsepower like i want to do that but my son is holding me back so it's like what do we do well let's turbo charge that i was into like turbo cars when i was probably I think I was 17 or so. I got a turbocharged car, um, RX-7. And so I was, you know, always trying to turn up the boost on that thing. And when I got into snowmobiling, I'm like, man, why don't they just put a turbo on this thing? So we ended up turboing those sleds and getting, you know, 400 plus horsepower out of them. And they pretty much, they'll scare you what they'll climb up. I mean, it is unbelievable. Anything you can hang on to. As long as you can hang on to it, it'll go up it, right? Well, you still got to ride it. So, <laughs> I mean, you still got to have the skills to navigate this machine up it. But it's, and then when that does, when you don't make it, it's pretty much a yard sale at the bottom. You'll be sliding down on your butt, picking up parts all the way. So that's a lot of, I, I know, I know talking to Tom Ways about this, you two have kind of bonded over that. Like you guys have a lot of commonalities. I mean, he was from Pennsylvania, ended up at Squaw and then ended up in Southern Alaska doing similar, you know, the stuff that you were doing in Utah, he was doing Alaska, even though you came from Alaska and came to Utah. I mean, that's kind of cool to have a guy inside over four that you guys can sit in, you know, rap session about that type of stuff. Right. Yeah. Tom's always been cool. I mean, I, I kind of knew a friend of, of Tom's from my snowboarding days named Chris Coulter. And Chris knew I was building this ultra four car. And he was like, well, I know this guy, Tom, that races ultra four. So Chris would be telling Tom, you know, Hey, this guy, Paul's building this car. And Tom was like, you know, thinking like, but you know, he, he sure, went, I don't know what he was thinking, but <laughs> then I show up to this race and Tom is, Tom was there. And he was like, Oh, you're Paul. And he's like, Oh, you got a, you know, you got an IFS car. <laughs> Yeah, so we kind of bonded right away. It was like, you know, he was into the same stuff I was into, you know, up in the mountains, uh, snow. Um, He was on skis. I was on snowboards, but it was always, you know, I think he's he's the same as me in that sort of thrill-seeking of going down a mountain fast or, you know, hitting a jump. I think you two are amazing, but I think you're nut jobs. And (laughs) that's okay with me. Like, I think you guys are badasses, but you're still crazy as I'll get out. But the thing is, I... If I grew up and was around the same stuff as you guys, we'd be, you know, birds of a feather flock together. I'd be like, oh, you're going up there? Okay, I guess I'll go up it. And the next thing you know, you're, you know, you're there. Well, that's how it works. I mean, you're, it's just, Pushing. you see one, it's just evolution. You know, you see one guy do a 360 and you want to do a 540. You know, it's, it's just, that's just the next step. It's trying to be better than the other guy or do that, you know, the trick a little better or do, you know, race a little faster than the other guy. It's, you know, it's, I guess it's how I've always been since I was young. It's just, I guess it's just competition, you know? So, you know, lose four races this year by less than 30 seconds. So we're going to move the goals up to like lose four races by less than 10 seconds. Is that? No. <laughs> <laughs> no the look goal, on your face but, is great. The goal is always to win, but I mean, Absolutely. sometimes, sometimes it's car break. Sometimes you just can't win, you know, sometimes there's other problems, but you try and win as many as you can. And that's, that's hundred percent the goal is to come and, you know, 
number one spot. And that we is, definitely don't want the number two spot. I mean, that's the worst. Yeah, that's your mindset. I love your mindset on that. That's the the absolute right mindset to be to be a winner there and be successful at that. I'm going to mispronounce these, but I know you've got one. We talk about snow machines or snow cats. Hagland, Hagland. How do you pronounce that? that? Uh, that's a, it. It's a Hagland. So I actually own three of them, but they're describe mili- what that thing is. It's a military amphibious vehicle. So this all goes back to growing up as a kid, and there was a military base that was located nearby, and these Haglands would always be driving around. Okay. And I used to always think to myself, man, I'd like to have one of those when I get, you know, find out how to make some money. So ended up buying a couple that we have up in Alaska. They're really hard to find. Yeah. They, uh, because I, they look like, they look like Russian Arctic circle types type things, but, but then they have like this little twist of, they look like you just see them like normal on a ski mountain anywhere in North America. It's kind of a cool vehicle because it's all mechanically driven. So two of them that I own have motor swaps in them, and uh, one still isn't finished. I put a Ecotec 2.0 liter turbocharged motor in there that makes 340 horse and a turbo 400, and it basically runs a drive shaft out of the turbo 400 into a divorce transfer case. Okay. And out of the transfer case has a drive shaft that runs the back two tracks. And then the drive shaft comes out of the front of the transfer case and runs the front two tracks. Okay. And uh, so it's four wheel or four track drive, which is kind of odd, but it's, it makes it easy. It's like a rock crawler. It's like a Jeep, you know, like you don't like that motor. Well, put a different motor in it. So it's kind of a cool vehicle in that regard, but it does have its base restraints that you can only put so big of a motor in there. It's not like you can just put, okay, let's put this big block in there. No, no room. It's an amphibious vehicle that actually goes on water, land, dirt, snow. Um, it was made for the U S military, uh, made in Sweden by a company called Hagland. Pretty cool vehicle. We use them for hunting up in Alaska. And then like, like inside, like how many people can you get inside one or plus gear or no, it's a, uh, it's a 17 passenger vehicle. That's oh, what it's, it's rated huge. For. See, that's why it's I, not huge though. It's, it's six feet wide. Yeah. See, they look small in your pictures. Yeah. So it's six feet wide and about 23 feet long, but it's the way the military designed it was six passengers in the front and 11 in the back. Okay. But it's really a, it's a pretty compact vehicle, but I mean, you could obviously get that many people in there, um, uh, but it, 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 the capability of that vehicle is, pretty i mean it can go across rivers it can go through snow through mud it's just you can pretty much go anywhere so it's just you know a pretty cool vehicle in that regard well i i like them i i was curious i was curious to hear exactly what they were and how they came to be and like how you ended up, i didn't realize you had so many of them but that's even awesome too that's that's well super cool whenever i see one for sale i mean they they usually don't cost that much money Unless you buy like a fully refurbed one, but whenever I see one or parts for sale, I just buy it just because I there you can't get that stuff. They're that rare. Yeah. Well, there's probably a few hundred of them around, but I mean, most people just have them. They're not selling them. They're you know using them. Well, I saw Jason Shearer. Uh, you know, he had a he's got a snowcat, or maybe he has two snowcats now. Like I, I think they're like four or six passenger deals that they they run around their little mountain area around Tahoe or. 
forget the name of it. Yeah, Jason's got a little, he's got a little Thiokol that, um, I think it's a Sprite that it's also right. mechanical type drive snowcat. This new snowcat we bought is a full hydraulic with a little turbo diesel motor in it. So it should be pretty cool. The mechanical snowcats, you can't really spin on a dime with them because it's, it's, it's more like breaking one track. Okay. But the Hagland actually doesn't, it turns by articulating the cabs. We're actually putting cutting brakes in that one. So you can put the brakes on tracks on the left or tracks on the right and try to, you know, maneuver it a little better. Oh, that that's cool. Okay. Yeah. So we pretty much don't leave anything stock. No, I know you don't. Yeah. So we, we, we have similar stuff down here on the Gulf coast, but it doesn't see snow. It's all for swamp and marsh and, and, and that stuff, stuff where, you know, you wouldn't use an airboat for because it's not airboat type terrain, but it's mug gumbo and they just drive those things across the top of them. So like, like the telephone crews, the power line crews, that's what they drive. There's a lot of those. Yeah, that's, Gulf Coast. that's pretty much what we use them in Alaska for. Cause Alaska is a lot of moose hunting up there. You're in the lowlands a lot. So yeah, those things are amazing in the swamps. Um, they just cruise, they float, they haul a lot of stuff. We go out hunting and I bring all my sisters, nieces, nephews. I mean, they just, you know, we go out 40, 50 miles with kids that are under two years old, you know, just the full, it's just a fun time. So your, your wife, Dr. Hillary, you've known her your whole life. I want to say not my whole life, but probably it's hard to remember that far back, but probably since I was six because we maybe a little earlier than that, but that's when I kind of moved over to her neighborhood area and we lived a couple miles apart, but there was probably only like three houses between us, you know? So we pretty much rode the bus together to school for, you know, 12 years or 10 years. So yeah, we, um, we didn't start dating until later in high school, but yeah, we've been together um, 25 years and married for 16 now. Well, all of that is congratulations, but what was her thought process in, uh, in 94 when you and your brother loaded up and moved to the lower 48 and you left her? What'd she say about that? I don't know. I mean, I don't think it was, I think it was tough, but it was like, you know, the winters in Alaska are tough. They're just, she was still in school. So I had graduated and it was like, well, I'm going to go down here and do this because I'm not going to sit up here all winter. And she was, I think she was, I think she was okay with it. But, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> it doesn't, I mean, that was, yeah. you know, we're, yeah. we're 25 years ago at this point, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Th- then we're, then she ends up coming down she ends up going to, you know, college, then, then, uh, med school. And now she's a pediatric ICU doctor, which is amazing. Blows my mind. Yeah, she works at Primary Children's Hospital here in Salt Lake. That's why we kind of live close to here, you know, Park City area. But we basically, when she graduated high school, she moved down to Malibu and went to school at Pepperdine for four years. And we dated all through that. And then she got accepted in the University of Utah and did her uh, med school here. And then she was able to stay on with them. And now she just works hospital here. That's awesome. Like that's like, you know, making the stars align and everything working out perfectly. Yeah, you can't beat that. That's, that's Yeah, we thought we were going to have to do some moving around, but it ended up being that we could actually stay in Utah. So, yeah, it was it was pretty cool to be able to stay here. I think she probably would have liked to move, but not not against Utah, but for her career, just staying in one place too long for the stuff she does is 
I, I guess it can be tough. I'm not, you know, yeah, it's, I don't it, know. It depends <laughs> on what your goals are. Right. So is, is, yeah. is she, is she into off-roading? I, I know she supports everything you do, obviously, but is she into the off-road stuff or the, any of the racing stuff? She's not into off-road, but I mean, we grew up off-road basically. I mean, we right, grew right. up, both of us grew up with no power, no phones until probably I was 14 when the phones showed up. So both of us grew up with no power, no, she had no bathroom. So no, no shower. Um, they had an outhouse outside. Our house had a, had running water when you started the generator, but so we both grew up pretty off-roadish. Like, you know, I guess they call it off the grid. Off the grid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So whoever wants to live off the grid, you don't want to do that. <laughs> take it from me well that's probably you want to be why, on the grid <laughs> well now and this is making sense this is probably why you can hold it for so long in a race car is because you grew up like that you're like okay i need to pee but it's minus 30 outside i don't want to bundle up to go to the outhouse yeah i don't know if it's that because <laughs> we <laughs> i think but that's part of i mean that's definitely something but it, i don't know if it translates into racing i think that's just me being intense but I think, you know, just growing up in that situation of, you know, both of us growing up and wanting to be better is what kind of has brought us, you know, to where we are. Man, no, it's amazing. Now today, today you guys have two kids. You've got a son, Matthew, and then a daughter, Lizzie, and they're pretty amazing, right? You're enjoying being, being a father. Definitely. You know, we didn't have kids for a long time and they kind of got to that point where it was like, well, I wanted kids and my wife didn't actually want kids and she was like well if you want kids we better you know have kids because we don't got too much longer to have these kids <laughs> or i don't you know what i mean so i'm like okay we better try and have some kids <laughs> so, and so here you are <laughs> having a kid at 40 is is uh it's pretty rough no man, you i said you're crazy earlier like the snowmobile and stuff yeah. i just it wasn't all that it's like collectively crazy i, I can't imagine at all i've, I've even yeah. purged the baby diaper stuff from memory and mine are only you know 13 and 9 you know so yeah it's been amazing uh, but you definitely want to do it in your lifetime and i mean it was just something we had to do to we wanted to do it you know but they've been amazing i mean they're definitely a lot of work but having a family having that support having you know kids that run up and hug you and you know call you on the phone it's just it's a part of life i think you, you definitely need yeah, experience and so, and so recently you know being in baja you're away from them so they want to know where daddy went right yeah lizzie you know she can barely she's like are you in mexico <laughs> but luckily for now or, or you know nowadays we have you know technology like facetime so even in mexico they were facetiming me every night you know, you know daddy what are you up to when are you coming home right that, you know that sort of thing you know but they're amazing. I, I don't know. Once you have kids, it's like how we live without them, you know? So no, I, I agree with you. I, I, I fully agree with you. Well, I'm, you before know, kids, you could live without them. You're just like, well, I don't know what kids are, but once you have them, you're just like, we should have had kids 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I kind of brought this up when, when this was going, when we were scheduling this, you, you had to make sure like, uh, that Hillary was going to be home to take the kids. So it would free you up to be able to do the call and some things like that. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I, it takes a village, but it really takes this like scheduling. You need to, and, and a, and a wonderful partner that supports you and, 
and you support her and all, you know, everything that goes on there. And, uh, yeah, you guys are clearly doing it right. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a lot of scheduling, you know, before it was like, Oh, I can go snowmobiling and, you know, come home at 10 at night. And now it's like, Oh, my wife's got to work tonight or oh, my wife is, you know, gets off at five. So I got to be home, take the kids from three to five or, you know, it's, it's definitely a lot more responsibility, but it's definitely worth it. But you, you definitely lose some of that freedom that that's a good trade off before. Though. It definitely is. Well, well, yeah, t- you'll tell You'll have to tell her, you know, or she listens to this, uh, Hillary, thank you for, uh, for, for freeing Paul up for me tonight and for everybody else that's going to listen to this. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. She's got the kids right now. I told her, I told her, I was like, I got this like interview thing for a couple hours and she looked at me kind of weird and she's like, okay, do you need me to help you? <laughs> that's like, probably, but no. yeah, I don't think she would have solved our, our speaker microphone issue. That was, that was too much. I mean. It, hey, it's working out right now. I can see you, but we're recording across the cell phones. Eh. Is it, it's technology. Technology today. Man, I skipped something and I want to go back to it. Like David Hartman and Nick Nelson, they're into the mini jet boats. JT Taylor just pulled the trigger on a mini jet boat. Cody Wagner has even a mini jet boat. I really want one. I don't really think I have a place to ride one. That's why I haven't really bit that off. But you've got one. Well, I got mine's a 14 footer, but it's a little, so it's a little bigger. I actually got some CAD drawings I'm working on to build my own mini jet boat because I got some ideas on how to make it better. But I actually didn't get into jet boating until we bought this place up in Alaska and then we bought a boat. Um, just as a kid, we couldn't afford a boat, but Alaska is, it's an amazing place, but there is no roads to access anything. You just got a couple main highways you know down in the states we have roads that go you know old mining roads old farming roads old you know access roads everywhere i mean there there's roads within five miles pretty much everywhere down here in alaska as soon as you get off the main road there's nothing so a jet boat is freedom it's like uh exploring up a highway that you've never driven up so we go up there and we just take these rivers well i got a river right on the back of my house so we actually dug in a boat ramp there so i can just unload the boat right behind the house and then just dock it behind the house cool, and we cool. can just go up and uh explore you know explore the stuff that i always wanted to explore when i was a kid like what's over that hill you know yeah i made notes like like paul is a guy that should have a mini jet boat and then uh back, you know doing my background on you sure enough you already had a mini jet boat because i was I think I put in the notes, like, are you into those? Would, would you be up with one? No, you already have one. Got it. Yeah. They're, they're a lot of fun. That's just, but it's just like anything else. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's, you gotta have buddies with them and they, they are work too. So That's but the mean. biggest thing is you gotta have buddies with them because you're going to get yourself in places. And if you break down in those places, you're not going to have any help. The guy's got a big boat. You can't go up in there for the most part jet boats are just a, a way of travel up in alaska so you can definitely see a lot more country um, another way of travel up there is airplanes but i've kind of decided to put that on the back burner for a little bit it seems like a lot of guys uh who have gotten out of ultra four have gotten into airplanes and i'm like man I, i'm just not a pilot i don't think that's i don't think that's what i aspire to do even dave coles talked about getting a plane i'm like oh really dave you're flying yeah yeah maybe yeah, I was all gung ho until about a year ago when a friend of ours passed away. 
from crashing his airplane down on my lap. But oh, Carol. Yeah, Kevin. But I mean, he pretty much had the airplane I wanted to buy. I think Kevin, guys like Kevin, guys like me, I think it's, I don't know if airplanes are a good idea because I think we tend to use an airplane not as a mode of transportation, but as a mode of thrill. I think that could end up bad. So I've decided to, you know, kind of hold off on the airplane maybe till I get a little older or, you know, a little wiser. I don't know. But I, I think me getting an airplane and flying up at, you know, 2,000 feet is going to be really boring. I'm going to want to like see if I can go down and buzz that creek or, you know, go around that rock vase or whatever. It, you know, and it's not going to be, you just don't have second chances nah, in an airplane. But I think, you know, where, you, where your head's, head is at is in the right place on anything in life on that is that you have at least the self awareness and the self respect of what your mind wants to do and what will do and what could happen that you've been smart about. Well, yeah, I just choose to not put myself in that position. You know, it's just, well, with kids too, it's just, you know, I want to see them grow up. It's just, it's just not worth it to take an airplane out and try and do something dumb in it and crash it and die, you know? Right. Well, yeah. He, he, yeah. Yeah. Kevin Carroll's loss was a, I mean, that was a, that was a bad deal. That was, that was a bad deal. And he, I mean, that, that was a loss for the community. His red dot chassis, his red dot cars were, I mean, they're just billy goats. They're just amazing billy goats. Yeah, but Kevin was just, I mean, he was the same. I just look at Kevin and just, you know, I understand what he was trying to do. He was just, he was trying to take his red dot cars, like places where people couldn't take his cars. And he's trying to do the same with airplanes. And I don't think, I think you can do it for a long time, but, you know, there's so much variation in an airplane, like, you know, an extra 200 pound passenger in the back or full of fuel and not full of fuel or the wind. Whereas a car, you're just grounded. You're, it doesn't matter about any of that stuff. And it's, you could hit a, a downdraft or something in an airplane. And, you know, when you're taking chances of, you could easily not make it where the other day you made it. No problem. Right. Yeah. Wow. No, I can see that. Uh, I, I, I think your, your head's in the right spot on that, man. So job wise, you are, uh, you're in explorational drilling, kind of in the oil field a little bit. You you're at a company called Tonatech and you've been there 20 years now, long time drilled all over the world. Now I started in the drilling business when I was 18. So after the year we moved to Utah, we would go back to Alaska in the summers it obviously paid a lot more money up there. So we got jobs. And when I was 18, I got a job on a drill rig. So I pretty much worked for that company from 18 to 29 ish. So 10 or 12 years ish. And I started just being a, you know, a drill hand and worked my way up to being the operations manager over, you know, 20 drill rigs when I was, you know, 29, 30. And then it was a, it was more of a family-owned company. It not, it had that more family atmosphere. It wasn't family-owned, but it just we were a smaller company. It was you know didn't have that corporation feel to it, and it, it got bought out um, by the second largest drilling company in the world at that time. And it was instantly overnight. It just like changed the whole feel of the company. It was kind of weird because I thought I'd work there for the rest of my life. And then that happened and it was just, 
uh, it was just a different atmosphere. So two guys that I worked with for, you know, those 12 years and I decided to start our own business back in 2007. We didn't have any money, but we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't even know anything about business, really. We knew how to drill holes in the ground. Right. But, but we made it work and we, we're still a small company. We have about um, anywhere from 50 to 70 employees and we have 11 drill rigs and we drill, we drill uh, core holes and uh, we drill, we focus most of our stuff on the Western U S um, and it's, it's more, it's more what we're good at deep core holes. Um, right. How, how deep you know, do you guys go? Deepest hole we've drilled was 9,200 feet. What's the temperature at the bottom of that hole or, or where it was? I don't know exactly because we don't really temperature probe, but gotcha. some of those holes that we do temperature probe can get up to like 180-ish somewhere. But, you know, sometimes we've drilled some geothermal holes that have had higher temperatures than that. But most of the time when you drill deep, it starts to get warmer. Right. But we're, we're drilling for minerals most of the time. So it's, they're not, they don't really care about the temperature. Now, is that something that you guys, you and Lauren have uh, had some commonalities and ability to have some discussions on about, you know, because similar, similar backgrounds, Lauren working for core labs for all those years. Yeah, I think he was, I haven't talked to him actually too much about what he, I know he was in the oil field, but I think he had quit by the time I was into ultra four, but he was in more into rock technology and stuff like that, I believe, but I'm hundred percent certain, but yeah, he's, I mean, he's just a hardworking guy. Just, you know, like me that just has a passion for racing. So, but obviously I think he was just working for somebody where, and not as an owner of a business. That's right. So uh, when he got, he got to a point where he just, you know, was able to just race full time, but I have other obligations. I mean, you know, to keep the ball rolling. Right. Yeah, that's that's something else. But I mean, you've drilled some uh, you've drilled some pretty cool places, like uh, you know. And I always mess up the name of this town, the name of this country. <laughs> I stop. Kyrgyzstan. Uh, yeah, Kyrgyzstan. And yeah, what do you do over there? I think I was over there for four or five months. We were actually up at like fourteen thousand feet near the border of China. So Kyrgyzstan is it's bordered by China, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, and I think that's about it. I don't know too much about the area over there, but it's just sketchy. So typically when we drill an area like that, it's just, we're just up in the mountains somewhere drilling. It's not, you know, we're not in town. We're not, we're just out there because if you start showing up in town, you might get your head chopped off, but right. it wasn't that bad where we were at. But when we were there, well, I was actually physically on the job site in Kyrgyzstan. They, threw the president out and burned the capital city. So I go in there, you know, for a three month stint and I go back out to fly out and then the whole city burnt down, you know, boarded up with burnt down, boarded up with plywood. It's a crazy experience. I mean, it's just basically Detroit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been to downtown Detroit, but it probably something similar something to that. Similar. It's, it's what I envision. Yeah. And then you ended up in Madagascar too. What? You know, we've all seen the movie, the Disney Pixar movies, Madagascar, but no, we're talking about the real country off the coast of Africa. It was a pretty cool experience. I mean, I think everybody should go to a third world country before they're 25. 
and I'm not talking about Mexico. No, well, Mexico, it's not. I mean, there's there's some bad stuff, and you know, the further down you go in Mexico, but I think a lot of people take it for granted what we have here, you know. But I remember just getting off the plane in Kenya, and it was just like uh, it was just an eye-opening experience to get there and see how poor these people were. And we came in there and we were trying to start a big mine up for them, you know, to make, you know, people opportunity there. But it's just amazing. I mean, those people are working for like a couple dollars a day. So I ended up spending about seven, eight months over there. And we, we actually loaded up a AN-124 Antnoff with four drill rigs, a log, a 518 cat log skitter, a D6 cat with a winch on the back, two Connexes, all the drilling equipment, and uh, like wood chippers, and enough gear to last us seven, eight months, all on one plane. And this is this and, huge, ugly Russian cargo jet. It's a Russian cargo jet that was made to haul this Russian space shuttle. <sighs> so the nose, the nose tips up in this plane, and the tail has a big ramp on the back and it's so big that you could drive two, you know, bulldozers side by side all the way through it. It's, it's just one big shell, like a big, you know, shell with a big crane system inside of it. But we basically flew that thing. It took five days to get over there just because it has to land for fuel every four hours or something like that. Pass everything but, but a gas station. <laughs> it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, but we it was a, it was a cool experience. They were like, "You guys want to? We had some room on this plane. You guys want to get in?" We were like, "Sure, man, we're coming in." <laughs> so we fly on this plane, and it has one window for the pa- in the passenger compartment. That's you know, it's like an eight inch window, and it's so high off the ground you can't really see anything until it's you know two hundred yards out there because you're on the upper part of the circle of the airplane fuselage. So you couldn't tell, you couldn't really tell if this airplane, it rumbled so much. You couldn't tell if this airplane was flying, taking off, you know, or taxiing down the runway or anything. It just, the whole plane just rumbled. It was, it was pretty crazy. That's some blind faith, right? You just had to have some blind faith that this thing is actually going to defy the laws of physics and gravity and go through the air, right? Well, it's, I mean, those guys do. I mean, they, they really know their business and they, I mean, it had to land and when we landed in Madagascar, it had to land between, you know, midnight and two o'clock in the morning due to air density because the runway was too short. So they, they go in there and they have someone on the ground checking air density when this plane lands because That's pretty it's cool. so big. Yeah. So, but it was pretty cool that most jobs like that, you would have to, you know, put all your stuff in containers and ship it over by boat and then try and deal with customs and get all your stuff out of customs this way we were just like on the ground drilling in a week you know from go time which was a huge benefit to the client to be able to get their you know it was for a nickel mine and be able to get that mine up on you know up and improved before some other mines came up so how did you win a bid like that or how did you even go about getting flanged up with a nickel mine in Madagascar. How does, how does. How well, this, this was before when I was working for a, you know, 
not my own company, but when I was working for the other company and it was, you know, it was actually, they were part of a, a mining group. Okay. So they had kind of a mining group and that mining group needed the help. So it was like, okay, we can do this and we'll do it. You know, you want us to show up there a week? Well, two weeks, we can do that, but this is what it's going to cost because we got to rent this airplane. So we actually use that same airplane to go to Kyrgyzstan too, because it's actually pretty beneficial to get somewhere fast. Which wow. is, it's kind of like the Pony Express, right? That's like overnight delivery with your own Russian cargo jet. Overnight delivery with a whole drilling fleet, you know, you just show up and you buy some pickups when you land on the ground to work. I feel like we should get into dr- to, to gun running. I feel like you know, you're, you're <laughs> flying around some countries that are always at war. I feel like we, we you know, we've, mi- we've missed our calling, you know, D- desert racer, gun runner, you know, I, I feel there's something there. Uh, I, try, <laughs> I try and do legal stuff. But yeah, I, I do love guns, but it's crazy. Like you just land and then you just, I mean, we just start loading on semis, like no customs, no nothing. I mean, if you wanted to bring guns, that's the way to do it. Just, <laughs> I remember, I remember landing there and, you know, this old rickety semi shows up to load our stuff on. And it's the guy comes out, you know, sandals on, you know, that are all beat up and, you know, pants with holes in them. And he starts banging the pins out for the ramps on the semi. And he's got a stick with a rock, you know, with some uh, rope holding the rock on there for a hammer. And that's, that's what he's beating the pins out on. You know, it's, it's just, same thing, you know, cavemen used 10,000 years ago. We're still there. It's crazy that you'll see entire families. There's really no gravel there. So, because it's on a big rock island, but you'll see these rock quarries where these families will just be chipping rock out of this mountain. And they pretty much sweep, they'll chip out these bricks or building houses. They'll try and, you know, it's a pretty crude brick. And anything that's, you know, small enough for rock goes in the rock pile. And then anything small enough for that goes in the sand pile. And you'll see these families just smashing two rocks together, sitting there cross-legged, smashing rocks together to make smaller rocks. I mean, that's essentially how poor that country is. It's just, everything is done by hand. It's, uh, I mean, if you go there for, you know, the time that I spent there seven, eight months, I mean, it's just, you go back to America and you're just like, so glad to be back. It's it's kissing the ground and you know the consumer economy that we have here and no matter whatever it is you you want you can buy it if you <laughs> if no one makes it or it's too expensive you design it yourself and you make it yourself. Well, you, you can at least you know here you can at least work for something. You could you know my motto has always just been like go out and work harder than the other guy and that that's how you get ahead. There you could work as hard as you want. And it doesn't get you anywhere because there's nothing to work for. Well, I, I think it's the same for, for me, the same is work smart, not hard. And, and yeah, de- you definitely want to work smart, but you want to, I shouldn't say work hard, but like accomplish more than, you know, just try and get more stuff accomplished and done in a day. And, you know, at some point you'll be further ahead than the other guy. You hope so when, when the dust settles, right. When, or when your sand pile yeah. settles, you're, yeah. you're measuring sand piles. <laughs> yeah. I, well, the I, problem, with, the problem is with racing, you're, you're racing against all those guys with the same thought process. So it's like, you know, at work, 
if you got a job at McDonald's or something and you're like, okay, I'll just make more burgers than that guy. It'd be pretty easy to do. But when you're going racing against the best guys in the world, I mean, all those guys have that same mindset and it's, it's pretty tough. You know, everybody wants to win. That's, you know, nobody wants second at all. Well, there's probably 10 guys in ultra four that, you know, we look at as true competitors. You know, there's a few guys out there that, are a little slower and maybe just you know there for the experience but there's probably 10 maybe 15 guys depending on the race that are just in it in it for number one you know and it's and they're all in the you know same thought process as you know me so it's wired the same it's tough yeah yeah we're all wired the same we're just all trying not to hit that rock and destroy the car well so this is a great place to jump into this you know we we you know, seeing where you're from, you know, Alaska to Utah to how you ended up in the, the, the drilling, you know, in the world and uh, your job and you know, being going worldwide and experiencing all that. How did you end up in ultra four? You've been racing ultra four for what? Six years now, five years, some, somewhere in there. I started racing in 2014. So it's just been one of those dreams as a kid to, but I, I always looked at those magazines. I mean, it was always magazines back when we were kids. I mean, you probably know. Yeah. I mean, you have the same. Oldest shit. It wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was always magazines. We always looked and be like, oh, these desert trucks. You know, look at these guys racing the bar 1000. You know, that was always like, look at these guys racing down the bar. Look at these guys racing the mint. And it was always like in the back of my head, like, I want to go do that someday. So, I mean, finally, when I was able to go do that, like, uh, financially i decided it probably wasn't the best to jump right into a trophy truck i mean that was my plan but it was like okay if i jump into this trophy truck who's going to come down and help me fuel this trophy truck and who's going to come down you know how am i going to go a thousand miles because i don't know dave cole at this moment in time right. <laughs> he he's probably not going to help me out to go racing so well, i was like okay let's ultra forward start now and they actually had a race in Utah. So I went over and just checked it out. And I was like, okay, these guys have real race cars. And um, it seems like something I can maybe get into and then, you know, see how I like it and, and kind of use it as a stepping stone or something to Baja racing. But so I kind of have been into it since so I started building the truck. Well, I had a guy, a company start building the truck in 2012, but it took them two years to build it. So, I didn't race it until so my first race was actually NorCal rock racing. Cause I wanted to qualify for King of the hammers in 2014. And it was, you have to qualify into King of hammers unless you wanted to go into LCQ. So they finished the truck and it was like, you know, obviously not finished that well. But I mean, it was just, you know, put those bolts in, let's go racing. <laughs> and I go to NorCal and I ended up winning the race. I won like 5,000 bucks and won the race. Got qualified for King of the Hammers. I'm like, I'm like, oh, this is pretty easy to race against these guys. But little that I know is not that easy. Yeah, that was beginner's <laughs> luck, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there just wasn't that many good racers down there at that time racing. So, you, you know, you show up to King of the Hammers and it's just like a huge eye opener of like, well, I don't even know how to rock crawl. So what am I doing in these rocks? I mean, <laughs> you know, cause I don't come from a rock crawling background or anything like that. I just, I like to drive fast, but 
So I'm still trying to learn the rocks. But you read terrain pretty well. I think that's that's probably my best attribute to racing is terrain reading. And I think that I get that from, I think it's terrain reading and holding momentum. And I think I get a lot of that from, you know, snowmobiling, even snowboarding, you know, um, trying to keep your speed through spots and trying to look at terrain and where, how I can hit this without, you know, blowing out my legs or, you know, trying to go up this jump or, you know, just reading train like that and trying to find the smooth spots. So I think that that definitely helped me a lot in racing, um, especially in ultra four racing, because it's pretty much to me, it's pretty much looking, choosing two lines for my two tires is, is how I go about racing is, you know, what am I going to put that tire on? What am I going to put that tire on? But right in the rocks, I kind of get confused because it's a big puzzle. And you're trying to solve it at speed as it's coming at you, which is fun. Yeah, I think that's the exciting part. Speed and I just, I, th- I think when I first started racing, I was just like, I'll just hit this thing super fast and try and blow through it. And then, you you know, rear diff hangs on it. So there's actually a lot of talent. It takes a lot of skill to go through rocks and especially at speed. Um, and it just takes seat time. So. Cleanly, cleanly through rocks at speed. Everyone yeah, can go that, through rocks with speed. <laughs> I mean, it's just rocks are crazy. You can move over one foot and have a totally different line, or you can put your tire on this rock and go over that rock because it picked the side of the car up. It's just knowing your car and knowing the rocks. I mean, I think that's one of my biggest struggles is KOH. It's, uh, I always end up rolling the truck or doing something dumb, you know, and it, it, I don't seem to have that problem in any other race, but KOH. So, well, you know, maybe, and maybe this year's the year, right. As we approach KOH 2021, but I don't want to get no, too, this, too far ahead. This year is definitely the year. I mean, we're, we're definitely going for it. But KOH is a, it's a pretty fast pace. I mean, it's, so you just have to, you have to know those rocks really well and know what your car can do. It's kind of a different deal than, you know, going down to race Baja where you're just trying to, you know, keep the truck together for a thousand miles and go, go a decent pace, but you're not, you're not pushing it like a KOH. It's going to be amazing when we do win KOH. The, the, the thing that always, you know, I, I know everyone struggles with this at KOH. It's the, you have your, your heart rate up and your, your processor up as you're running, you know, 60, 70, 80 or 90, uh, across, you know, or a hundred and something across the lake bed. And then you drop into one of the canyons and you need to drop to one mile an hour, three miles an hour, five miles an hour, but your brain is still processing at a completely different speed and your heart's at a completely different speed. Yeah. It's, it's KOH is like nothing else out there. I mean, it just goes from these massive puzzling rock features that you have to try and get your car over to 120 mile an hour plus stuff to big whoops to sand to loose rocks mixed with sand i mean it's just it's just one thing after another in that eight hours of koh it's just it's just one mistake can take you out and you just can't have those mistakes you gotta put it together you you have to put it together i mean well it seems like look at marcos this year marcos had it together and then ripped an A arm off within a, a mile, you know, or two miles or three miles out, whatever that was. It wasn't very far out. Or Blyler rolling and rolling on back door. And, well, that, I mean, that just shows you the pace. You know yeah. what I mean? They're just, I mean, these people aren't in it to lose. They're, they're in it for the number one position. And if it takes 
jumping off back door and rolling your truck or, you know, hitting that rock because you're going too fast around a corner. I mean, that's, that's where the racing and KOH has gotten. It, it's almost a sprint yeah. Um, through the rocks and you just have to keep pace. It's, it's, and all, I think all of, all of ultra four racing is like that, you know, and, the speed these cars are going through the rocks these days is just, it's just crazy. And all the while keeping Eric Miller at bay. Yeah. Eric is Eric's. I mean, we definitely can pull him in the desert. Um, but he just got that car working so well in the rocks. It's just, I mean, he's like a ninja. He is a ninja. How, how like that rock word. Ninja. <laughs> rock ninja. Yeah. So what was your first year attending KOH? Like, did you ever go as a spectator or was your first year that 2015 to, to race it after you qualified at NorCal? 2014. So 2014 KOH was my first year. No, it was straight to 4,400. Straight qualified at NorCal, fix up my car. Don't know too much about prep. Don't know too much about anything, but show up at KOH and go racing. How'd that um, go? I never went back and looked. How, how did 2014 go for you? I don't really remember. <laughs> I'd have to think about it, but not very well. I don't think I finished. I think I don't think it was going that horrible. I think I ended up blowing a rear pinion coming out of spooners. Spooners, so we lost the rear diff because it was a high pinion uh, spinning on the coast side. Okay, and you know, me being new to racing probably had a lot to do with it. You know, not not lifting at the right moment. Yeah, not knowing what your parts can withstand. I think a lot of guys can drive with a high pinion rear rear engine motor setup, but if you don't understand it all when you come into racing, you can definitely blow it up pretty easy. But I think uh, I think that year we ended up losing the rear diff coming out of Spooner, so I didn't have much to go. But I mean, that wasn't I, I was I don't know probably in the top twenty, but you know nowhere near the lead pack. Yeah, they'd walked away. Well, yeah, but it was definitely an eye opener. It was just, you can imagine, just get a 4,400 car. Let's go race King of the Hammers. I mean, it's just, now your people think you're dumb. That's just, you know, it is what it is. Wow. But no, you're still with it, though. So w- at what point did you start deciding you were going to change your car? You, and by change, I mean, build your own. And by that, I mean, you're self taught at SolidWorks. I've seen your CAD models that you kick out of your plan for your vehicles and the things you're changing. You're really regular on posting content on Instagram. You're not on Facebook. And I've heard that from, you know, Alan Johnson with ultra four always gives you know, me a hard time about you. He, he's like, he's like, I, you know, Paul is in everything. He's at every race. I take pictures. We go to post content and then I can't tag him on Facebook. So, but, but on Instagram, you're very active. And like I said, you, you're self-taught in every aspect of your life, everything that we've talked about to this point. I don't know if any, if that hasn't, people haven't caught on to that trend with you is how much you're self-taught and how much you push that envelope of, of if you don't know it or understand it, you're doing it and figuring it out and moving forward from all the way from those haggling trucks to your, your little mini jet boat to, doing turbo kits for uh snowmobiles now you're an ultra four and you've set the you've set the bar right you've set the bar that you didn't you know you didn't finish koh and now you're going going after it and so somewhere in there you teach yourself solid works and you start building cars for yourself what was that genesis i always loved to build things i mean it was just 
I mean, it was just like back in the day, like, okay, we want more suspension on our three-wheeler. Well, they don't sell a suspension for your three-wheeler, so get some forks off a motorcycle and put them on there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I was always into building things and, and working on things. I mean, I think it probably started young age. I mean, I remember my first car. It was, you know, I was driving down the road and I seen this car under a tarp. And I'm like, I need a car. You know, I was probably 13, 14 years old. And I was like, it looked like a Subaru. So I go knock on the guy's door and say, you want to sell that car out there? You know, and he says, he looks at me kind of weird. And he's like, sure. I was like, how much you want? He's like, 500 bucks. So I go up and pull the tarp up on this car. And the roof is smashed down to the, you know, to the belt line, this car. And this guy's like, you still want to buy this? And I was like, yep, we'll be back tomorrow with a trailer. You know, I think it's, so I took that car and I just took a handyman jack. You know, I was a 13, 14 year old kid and just put it in there between the door sill and the roof and jacked it up and glued a window in there out of a different car because we didn't have, you know, resources to buy nowadays it's like oh you need a windshield go down and buy it for a hundred dollars but back then we didn't have a hundred dollars and we, <laughs> windshields were hard to find so you cut one out of another car and put it in there so you know but it was just resourcefulness like that that's always got me through and it's always been if i don't understand something i have to go out and put my hands on it and do it it's not i can't someone can't teach me something in school I, i've never been able to learn that way Okay. So that's that's why college has never been good. Well, like my wife, she can go to college and learn all this stuff in school, but it's just not the way I can learn things. So I started teaching myself SolidWorks and and stuff like that when I started working on snowmobiles. I was like, oh, I need to build an intercooler. I'm going to build this intercooler on a snowmobile because it you know specific measurements and specific machine parts that I need. And I'm like, well. I can't afford to have that guy go build that because it's going to cost me too much money. So, well, I'll go build that myself. So I just started learning, you know, one part at a time, like, you know, build a little bracket. And pretty soon it was, when I got into ultra four racing, it was, you know, it was easy for me to go out and buy a car. And I definitely didn't want to build my first car because it was, I think it was too big of a hurdle to be competitive. It was like, I don't even know anything about cars. You know what I mean? So, how am I going to build this off-road race car? I looked at them. But then when I bought the car, I just I just noticed a lot of downfalls in the car. So I was like, okay, I want to... We did a lot of work to that car too, but I was like, okay, I'm buying a car from somebody. Shouldn't it be like a super nice race car that's really competitive that I could race for five, six years at least? No. But it, it, it wasn't that way. So when I kind of figured out what I wanted in a car, or what could be better in a car, I was like, well, I got to chop the back off, I got to chop the front off, and I got to chop the belly out of this car. So it was like, well, at that point, I'm building a whole new car, so we might as well build a new car. So I ended up designing my own car and just reading uh, reading books on you know suspension stuff and just trying to learn a lot, mainly just cycling suspension and solid works, just you know, spending a lot of late nights just doing CAD drawings and you know, trying to learn what the tire does when you do this and what the tire does when you do that and what the steering does. Um, and just playing around a lot with it, trying to learn it. And built The first car I built, I actually didn't have a... Uh, I didn't build the front IFS because that's the most technical spot of the car, um, the, the steering and IFS. So I had bought an IFS from a guy and we grafted that to that car. But 
I wanted something so technical at that point in my life because I thought, you know, I want the best. So I'll have, you know, these guys build the best. But it ended up being, you know, I think it was, it was, it was too cutting edge. It had too many, well, they say the cutting edge is the bleeding edge. Right. You know, so it had too many things in it, like that didn't work right and, and needed to be fixed. We ended up cutting the front of that truck off. We raced it probably for five or six races. And I did not finish one race with four wheel drive. I show up with four wheel drive and all brand new parts. And by the time I got done with practice, I wouldn't have four wheel drive. So I actually, in Glen Helen, we actually started the main event in two wheel drive and won that race in two wheel drive. And I think that was in 2016 in that truck. I remember people joking about it at some point that you didn't even run real shafts. Like you ran, like you ran like broomsticks painted black to like, as a joke, like as a joke, cause the car was two wheel drive. Well, we just pulled everything out of the truck because we didn't have another choice. It's not like I wanted to start the race yeah. as an underdog, but we obviously showed up to race. So it was, you know, we're showing up to the main event, two wheel drive, four wheel drive, one wheel drive. It doesn't matter. As long as you're um, able to go forward, for, yeah. forward, forward is what matters. <laughs> yeah, definitely. In, in, so, I mean, in that stuff though, you were, that was the two works that, that was, you know, uh, the, the game changers, right? Doesn't your, one of your current cars have that game changer center sections in them today, even though it's, you've made iterations. Yeah. We, well, it's actually got that, the, so when we built that car in 2016, it's actually the car Lauren Healy has right now. It actually had a two works built the rear diff, which is a planetary, and then the front diff was a planetary. But uh, it wasn't necessarily the diff that was bad. It was the planetary setup was overspinning the lockers too fast, and we couldn't get the lockers alive. Okay, that's cool. It was just something you didn't think about. It was like, okay, lockers are living, so why do we need to think about them? But now you're spinning the locker three and a half times faster than a normal locker. All the ratchets were you know, wear out, springs wear out, everything wears out in it too fast. And then that car had like uh, a crazy swing set type steering in it. It was just, I think we were trying to put more into it than what we knew would work. Now I kind of look at a car as I want like a, I don't want to make too many changes. We want to move forward, but I don't want to, I don't want to sit there for a year or two years and not finish a race. I think if you build something too advanced, I think you're going to be in that same boat. You're just going to be fighting your car, trying to get it to work, trying to, you know, because it seems like everything we try, there's always a learning curve to it, whether it's a transfer case or a transmission or an engine or, you know, anything you try, it's always, oh, this didn't work. So now I try, we try and focus on what does work and then how can we make that better versus you know, let, let's make a rocket ship. Why orange? Orange has been a color of mine since I was a kid. I mean, I had an orange snowmobile and I had an orange car. We actually painted orange. I taught myself how to paint cars because I was always buying wreck cars because, you know, those were cheaper. So we would paint them. I just always been drawn to the color orange. Nothing special. It's just. Gotcha. It's I, just, just, <laughs> just curious. Sometimes yeah. people have reasons. Talk to me about Mitch and uh, Josh Markham. You know, Mitch Sweat and and Josh Markham. You have two really amazing guys that 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 work with you and work for you and help you, you know, accomplish goals. 
Tell me about those two guys because they're also somewhat mysterious a little bit in their own in their own rights. Uh, yeah, I got some amazing people helping me out racing. It's uh, so Mitch. Um, we kind of met probably about six eight months before this. I'll tell you this whole story. But so he, the Tube Dragon had just come out from uh, Bentec, and Mitch was he had a shop and he was looking at buying one. So they were like, "Oh, there's this guy, you know." couple miles away from you that has one so mitch you know calls me up and can i look at your tube dragon you know i show it to him and i I don't think too much of mitch you know until well he's 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 a busy guy so i mean we keep in contact but it's like two weeks well it was a week before nationals and uh i think it was 2018 or so and we i had cut the front end that tube works front end off that car entire front end and it's a week before nationals and i'm like looking at this car like am i gonna make this and i'm like well i need some more help (laughs) so i call mitch and he comes over he's like yeah i'll be right over because he's he's that kind of guy that just yeah whatever you need i'll i'll be over there right now i can drop whatever i got going and i'll be over there to help you he looks at me and he comes in the garage and he's just like uh, he, just the look on his face is like he's like this is nuts you're not going to get this done we might as well quit right now <laughs> but we showed up to nationals raced and got it done i mean it's just you know it, it, if you put your mind to something you pretty much can i mean there's some limitations but yeah and, and he's a hell of a fabricator he's a hell of a ranch and he'll do anything he's he's been a big asset to the team um i mean Mitch and Josh both, and we got a couple other amazing guys that help us too. But I mean, we'll talk more on those guys in a bit. But Mitch, he fabricates uh, and works for a guy that runs a razor in Best in the Desert. He actually raced Best in the Desert in his own razor for a few years. So he's kind of that guy that has that racing, loves racing. I mean, he just, it's just his passion. So he always tells me, you know, it's the lifestyle. So yeah, it absolutely is. so, So he just, he just, Whatever it takes, he just loves it. And, you know, same with Josh. Uh, I met Josh. There was a company called Midnight 4x4 in Salt Lake that sells a bunch of off-road parts and uh, tubing and all kinds of stuff. They're a pretty core shop. And I would buy my tubing build cars. And, you know, first Josh by like, who's this guy buying all this tubing? But finally he's like, you know, if you're buying all this tubing, maybe I should come check out your projects. <laughs> so he's like, he comes up and checks it out. He's like, and can I just come up and help you guys? And we're like, sure, you know. So Josh, Josh came up and helped, and you know, and uh, yeah, he's in, a, in his business, right? Yeah, you you said it's midnight four by four there in uh, Salt Lake City, right? That's right. Yeah, midnight four by four. They're ox- online also, so they sell a bunch of off road parts. Uh, you know, pretty much anything you need. Plus, guys like Josh that work there can get you whatever you need. They don't. They don't even have it. They can source it. They're just resourceful people. But Josh is also a good fabricator. He can weld. You know, we can all weld. We can all do all this work. And it just, we kind of split it up. Like, I'll do the CAD work. I'll do some of the welding. But I just can't do it all. I mean, you can't build it. it take, a car like that takes two to 3,000 hours, like man hours. And for me to accomplish something like that, it would take me a couple of years. So if you want to get a car out, you just have to have a few talented people and just, you know, put in the hours when it, it spits out the other side. But you definitely can't do it by yourself unless you're willing to 
you know, get a car in two or three years when technology has changed. It moves that fast right now. Yeah. So, but all of us, you know, we kind of take on different, different skills and, uh, or different tasks, get it done. But those guys are just, it's amazing. Those guys are just, when we go racing, you know, I'll think of like, Oh, I don't want to change the gearing in the truck. And Josh and those guys, as soon as I come back in, they're like already like, do we need to change the gearing? I was like, no, I don't want to pull this out. And they're like, oh, we're changing the gearing. I mean, they're like, they're, they're, they want to win more than I want to win. Sometimes it seems like, you know what I mean? I want to win, but it's like, man, that's going to be two or three hours work. But, you know, those guys are just like, man, we're going to win this race. We're going to pull this, pull this transfer case, pull this transmission, whatever we got to do, whatever we have parts for, it's going in this truck. I mean, we're working all night if we got to. And I think that's the, the mindset your whole team has to have to actually go out there and accomplish something like, you know, winning a race or doing well. Well, I I think a lot of guys have said this. We've said it on this show before many times. And I think, I believe it's sinking in for some, but the, the race is one in the shop, man. It's one in prep and it's one in the pit right before the race, before the green flag drops. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, car setup is huge and, you know, now we have a lot of notes, but we're also ultra four is always changing venues and going to different places. So we don't necessarily have gearing notes or, you know, uh, what we need or what. So we're always changing. And I think that was a big problem with me at Crandon this year is the new truck. I go out and, you know, instant rev limiter. We went out and tested it, but it felt really good, you know, but I think that's where a lot of people like, I think racing to me is a, has been my like test ground has like been my proving ground where a lot of people go out and like test and think their car can go win a race, but racing is the best test you can put on a car hands down. Oh, absolutely. So like we would, we would go out and test this truck. Oh, it feels great. And you go out to a race. Oh, we're on the rev limiter, you know, cause the race is the only place you're putting that car at a hundred percent. Otherwise you're, you think it's doing great. You're just hitting, you know, doing a donut out in the desert. And you don't even realize you need 10 more mile an hour out of the truck. Yeah. There's so show up. There's no replacement for green flag time. Yeah. I think that's why I try and do as many races as possible because I just want that experience. You know, that it's just like you said, there's zero better experience than actual seat time racing somebody, because then you are pushing the limits. You know, everybody's pushing the limits, you, your crew, every, everybody's just there to win the race. And it's, but like you said, it's a lot of it's prep tuning. Unfortunately, we don't, the hard thing with me is tuning like these trucks. I almost think that tuning on the track is probably the best way to tune. Well, you try to get your kind of your dope sheet, right? You know, you know, the train, you have an idea where, you know, at least a starting point, and then you get some practice in and then you get the qualifying in and you have different cuts at kind of the fine tune, right? We look at it as any edge we can to win. I mean, whether it's, I mean, we'll gear the truck for three mile an hour, you know, so whatever we can do to be more competitive, I mean, whether it's whatever it takes. Do you run any like data acquisition on your cars? Yeah, we have the life racing Danzio, that whole Danzio. That's what it was. Engine package has life racing in it and it has a full data log system on it, but it only really records, uh, you know, engine temperature, transfer case temperatures, all the those parameters, front diff, rear diff. It does some like transmission slippage, stuff like that. 
but we don't have any like shock sensors or anything like that. It's more, that's more seat of the pants. Like, Oh, I can go faster. This, you know, this is hurting me. We need to adjust this. That's fair. Let's talk about your single seater real quick. Cause I think this is the perfect place to, to talk about your current single seater that, uh, you just took, you know, you took second at nationals with, and you, you didn't have a lot of luck with this year, but you did. You, the, the, the problem is it's not a problem. It's just, you're there to win and second place is truly the first loser for you. And, and the way you look at your car, and this is a brand new car and you guys race at, you know, COVID threw all sorts of monkey wrenches into everything. But if, as I was talking to Mitch, Mitch and I were discussing how many races you guys did on that car in like a four week or six week period of time. It was like Crandon, NorCal, Moab, Oklahoma, or somewhere in there, like you fit in race. Is that right? It was four and six weeks. Well, I think we did. Yeah. Well, we did two at Crandon. So that was, that took up two races and then raced at Moab. And then we went to NorCal. That's right. And then and showed then up at nationals. Nationals all on that same car. So it was one, two, three, four, five in a row on that car. And the big thing with that car to me was proving it to myself. I think that's the platform that we're going to try and build the new car around. So it was like going out to NorCal was like, okay, I can get some more seat time. We can go out in the desert, but that's really not going to prove anything to anybody. So let's go out there and see how tough this thing is. You know, we, we have to go out there. We, we can't just build another car unless we know this car can work. And there's definitely been some bugs in it that we're, you know, definitely getting out of it. But I think, you know, it's a, uh, it's taking what everything we know and putting it into what we can build. Seeing that product come out is, is pretty cool. Is, is your goal been to in forward looking? I don't know if it was, it was ever a goal back in 2014 or 2016, but now that we're in 2020 and you've put together you know cars and is one of your future goals is to build and sell some or build race, then sell to feed the habit. You know, that's been a, it's been a challenge. I, I think, I'd love to build people cars, but I don't think people want to pay what it takes to build a car to this level. And I don't want to build someone a car at the half level. So, but I also don't want to build a car and, and be competing with that car at some point. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, unless, unless I can build a better car, unless I think I can build a better car. So when Lauren asked me to buy that car, I said, well, I think I can build a better car. So sure. I'll say that car, but, you know, I've had lots of people ask me to buy these other cars and I'm just like, you know, like they're not for sale. It's, it's, I don't want to race against it. Well, I mean, the real reason I started building race cars was to, so we could evolve the race racing. So I look at things as like, uh, you know, since I design it all, it's all works. I know exactly what kind of camber, I know what kind of caster, I know what, you know, what the steering angle, I know what the anti-squad is. I know all these numbers into these cars. And then I ride the car and I'm like, okay, this is why this car is behaving like this. Okay. And then we take it to the next car and we do a little fine tuning on it to try to make it better. And I think that's been, you know, a big reason that we're, we do so well is homework. We take that knowledge and versus, you know, a lot of guys in the trophy trucks, they're driving the same trophy truck as the other guy. So how do you, how do you get that edge over that guy? You know what I mean? Well, we saw it for many years where it was, you know, 
T1s, trophies, whatever, they were, it was the class of geyser trucks, right? Everyone drove a geyser. And then finally we started to see Mason join the party, uh, TSCO build a few, you know, Jason Voss's truck was built by a couple guys up in the Bay area, I believe a father, son team. I mean, so we've seen some trucks come out that weren't all geyser, but there was a window there, like the maybe oh nine, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there where um, every truck was a, it was a geyser built in Phoenix. Yeah. But if you're, if you're doing that, you're just, you're racing, you have no advantage over the other guy. It's none. I mean, there's some tuning, but you have the same truck. So it's a spec series. And that's, and right. that's what I think is so cool about ultra four right now is build whatever you want. Run, you know? run what you brung. Yeah, run what you brung. So if you think you can build, you know, your car a little bit different here and make it better here, try it out. It's up to you to try that. But and that's what I think has kept me in ultra four racing is is the you know build my own car the idea of I can build something faster than the other guy. I you know have these ideas and I want to try this and you know this car is acting this way, so let's try and lower the roll center in the truck or you know. That sort of thing is, you know, we're just fine tuning these cars to try and make them faster. So I don't believe I'm the fastest racer out there. I think I have a better weapon. I think I'll, I'll get to that point where I'm a faster racer every time I race. But, you know, a lot of these guys have a lot more experience than I got. And seat time is it's huge. That it is. And, you know, we just came out of Thanksgiving. A lot of people were out at the hammers testing, tuning, pre-running, just kind of getting everything kind of shaken out before they do that last tear down and final prep for, uh, for what's coming at us at full speed, like 50 some days from now. But, um, man, you, we kind of cranked through everything I want to crank through. One thing I want to go back and touch on is you mentioned, you've got some other guys that I want to give you the chance to give a shout out to that, that worked on your cars with you and prep for you. I want to make sure that you, uh, are able to talk about them. I know the main two, but I know you have a, an incredible team. It takes more than just you and two guys. Yeah, unfortunately, like some of the, a lot of the help that we have is, you know, guys with other jobs or, you know, other obligations and they come and help on the weekends. Um, even Josh comes and helps on the weekends, but he usually comes to every race with us. I guess it, it just takes a lot of little contacts, you know, and then trying to find all these people and put them together. You know, I got a guy, Dave, that comes and helps me weld. Um, he's been welding for me for three or four years now and he can just sit down and just, he can, TIG weld for you know 12 hours straight wow yeah and you can just get a lot of stuff done and i got you know my brother-in-law they came down and helped down in baja and he brought a few friends from colorado and a lot of those guys will come to koh with us too and you know my sister helps out when she can even if it's just watching the kids you know while we're at koh you know my wife's sister holly uh does a lot of help uh race planning um you know hotels all that stuff that you just don't i mean it's just a huge pile of stuff that you have to do to go race oh it's a logistical nightmare and somehow we we continue to solve it yeah it's just it's massive it's like you know how are we going to feed all these people how are we going to sleep how are we going to get gas how are we going to do this you know so it just takes a pile of people to do it you know i got this uh lauren's coat the guy that drove with lauren his name is Zig. He drove the 250 with Lauren. He's actually co-drove with Jeff McKinley in the Razor last year. Okay. 
he does helps out a lot. Him and his brother Kai, this other guy named Ben. I mean, it's just all these people just are the only way it can happen. If I was a guy trying to race and trying to focus on racing and, you know, working on my car and doing all that stuff, it's just, it just, it's too much. It's just not possible. Uh, at least to run in that, you know, that, that, that top front pack. Yeah. It's, a, it's, I, I'm pretty blessed with the people that we have, you know, helping out and, and the, the whole, you know, mindset of the whole team of people, you know, uh, you know, well, trying I- to get the job done. I think that's also a personal reflection on you, right? The, you know, you've proven that you're goal oriented, you want success, you, you plan to achieve success. And the thing is people like to be successful, right? And so, and you've surrounded yourself with other people that are successful at the same time, you know, just like going to Baja with, with Lauren and Dave Cole, you've surrounded yourself with success. They view you as a successful individual and have surrounded themselves with you. Same with, you know, your team and they all kind of, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I know you've worked on a crew like this, especially on a drill rig. It takes, you know, if everybody's positive and upbeat, it makes the job go good. I mean, it makes everything like everything's good, but you take that one guy that's negative all the time and he just kind of poisons the well. Yeah. You definitely can't have those kind of people around. Yeah. Not, 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 not not in this environment. Well, I'd written down, you know, I always hit this spot, you know, in the, in the show where I always ask about the future and I'll tell you what my future, I had four bullet points. And sadly we've, we've hit some, and and I wrote this before Baja, right. And it was when Baja done, you did that. Congratulations again. I think that's so freaking cool. So epic that you, you guys pulled that off, uh, in the way you did spectacular. Well done. Uh, the next one was win KOH. I mean, you're there, right? You're in the hunt. That's the next goal. I mean, it's just, that's the next thing on the plate. You know, it's just a lot of work. I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of people look at racing from the sidelines and think of, you know, it looks fun. You know, I get a lot of people that tell me, Oh, is that a lot of fun? And it, it's enjoyable, but it's more that it's more the challenge, I think. And I think that's, that's kind of our uh, whole team focus is, is, is this is a challenge and we're trying to, you know, win this challenge. I mean, rise to the occasion. Yeah. Well, in Baja, I mean, those guys were up working on the truck till three in the morning three nights in a row before we even went racing, you know, and then we left the starting line. I mean, we, we didn't, it was nonstop work. I mean, pre-running, working on the pre-runner, working on the race car, just keeping everything alive. And, you know, these guys just don't stop, you know, it's like, okay, you need me to do that. Yep. I got that. And this guy, you know, everybody's just pitching in and it's just, everybody's in it for the, for the win well and when you talk to people outside of this circle they they look at you you know when you talk to let's call it other humans other humans yeah. other humans are like you work really really hard to have fun why do you work so hard to have fun why don't you just go to a beach and lay around on the beach like that's fun right well no, but it's not a challenge yeah it's there's no challenge in that so i mean it it, it, it would probably be relaxing but I've never been the kind of guy to go relax on a beach. So, I mean, this is kind of my world. So, I mean, it seems like the harder we work and the, the more we got to stay up till three in the morning working, the more we win. So whatever it takes to win. (laughs) The sacrifices (laughs) are worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then the, the next, the next bullet point I had was build another new car question mark. And it sounds like you guys are, I mean, you're, you're, you're nonstop. So, I assume you guys are cutting something up and, uh, and moving forward. What's your, what's your kind of window 
of opportunity on rolling that thing out, you know, sometime late 2021? Well, my plan is I was planning to chop the front off of my two C car that just won the Baja, but I started thinking about it and I was like, well, if I chopped the front end, I was, my plan was, okay, I'll chop the front end off that car and I'll have a front IFS. I could put a pre-runner around, but then if I got to build a pre-runner, I got to build a whole new car. So if I'm going to build a whole new car, I might as well build a whole new race car. Right. So that kind of, you know, my thought process kind of changed there and, I definitely don't want to do it before KOH. We're going to change a few things on the truck, but KOH this year is going to be kind of, it's going to be two races because they're going to do the desert race the week before, and then they're going to do KOH. So you need two cars down there. Right. So we, we don't know which car is going to race which, but we'll be down there with both to race both races. But it all depends on the course, but I'm kind of thinking I'm going to race the, two seat car in the desert race and then i'm gonna race the single seat car in the race. race yeah i think we'll have to see how how the course looks when it all comes out but i think that's kind of what we're thinking right now but once that is done we're starting on this new car by building you know front end components and stuff like that right now but we're not planning on to have it done until san felipe next year okay that'll give us some lead I just don't want to push these guys. I mean, they've been working so hard and we got to have a little family time. I mean, it's just, it's just too much. Enjoy their Christmas bonuses, you know, jelly of the month club or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we still got a lot of work to do before King of the Hammers. I mean, we have prepped two cars and a pre-runner. They're all, you know, pretty much trashed. Are, are so, you still, are you still pre-running that pinhole car? I am. I'm pre-running the pinhole car. My, my goal is, would be to sell the panel car and use the two seat truck as the new pre-runner and build a new cool. truck. That makes sense. Only well, it makes sense to me anyway. Yeah. Nothing wrong with the panel car. It's just, I like to drive my own stuff, but it's definitely done its purpose. It's going to be nice just driving our own stuff. It just, I don't know, to me, it feels better. You know, like I build this truck, you know, no, there's a confidence factor and there's a, there's a all a hundred percent known factor, right? That, yeah, you, you, you know this like the back of your hand. And then, man, my my last question, my last bullet point for the future was: What are your thoughts on what you know? What's the future for Ultra Four? What are the next steps? Like, where where is the technological advances going to come that push what we do and what you do today to the next level? Um, as in cars? Yeah. Well, I think Ultra Four. The problem with Ultra Four is it's so diverse that you almost need three race cars. You know, you need a short course car, you need a desert car, and then you need a KOH car. And all three of those cars don't add up into one car because your short course car, you don't have an extra guy in there for KOH to help you read notes or help you winch or anything like that. Your desert car is a little too big for KOH because, you know, it got these obstacles. It depends on the course, but, you know, your wheelbase might be too too big you might have you know too much weight carrying around but then you go out in the desert and you want a big heavy tar that can haul a lot of fuel and spare tires and parts and be comfortable so if you put all that into perspective you need three different race cars to be have the best of everything so i think we're going to do a little convertible work on this new car where it can solve the problem of two race cars but 
the Ultra 4, the way I see it, is you just need reliable parts that can get beat on and handle the, you know, handle these kind of races that they're doing. And then you also, I think shocks are going to be a big part of it. I think Fox is coming out with uh, some live valve tuning that you'll see um, at KOH. And um, yeah, we've had some discussions about that. I think that's, I think that's really cool tech. I think that's the next step, right? Yeah, I think they're on the leading edge of developing that stuff, and I think that's going to be a big benefit. You know, tires. I think we're on probably the best tire out there. I think there could be a benefit of. A little bit larger tire, the KOH. Like, like moving to like a 42 or? Moving to a 42, yeah. Because, I mean, that's the next step, right? But you got to have the car that can handle that. But if you can have a 42, now you can, you know, get up that ledge a little easier or get over this. But the, the problem has been wheels. You know, they're moving to a 20-inch wheel, and then the wheel is too big, and it's too weak. So... But I think there could be some something there it, with a little bit bigger tire, maybe a forty-one. Anything be yeah. better than a, than the other guy. Well, you're wearing a Nitto hat, so I would say maybe maybe the conversation needs to flow through through like Chris Corbett and up and be like, we need a forty-one for competition. Help us out here. <laughs> it's just so hard to no, I get, get that done. We know, you know, we absolutely but, know. Well, but, man, but, Paul. I was so worried is not the right word, but, um, I'd really wanted to interview you for a long time. I've had you on a list for a long time. I didn't know you very well and you're real quiet and, and guys like Will Gentile told me, Hey man, he's, he's, he's a hard interview, but man, I had a, I've had a great night with you, like a great session. Did we cover everything that, that you wanted to cover? I think so. I think we talked for quite a long time <laughs> we did this is probably the longest one i've ever had but you know uh, you got to make the finale you know for for this season you know you got to make it good and and i think you absolutely did that you filled in a lot of blanks for a lot of folks including myself i don't think i had anything you know left out there that didn't get answered i'd been told you were an interesting fella and listening to your stories you know interesting is not the word i have to i would use to describe you you are but I found you, I find you to be super inspirational. I find your drive and your ability to, get, you know, keep your eye on the prize to finesse and move, keep moving the ball forward and progressing no matter what it is refreshing. I find that inspirational. I found that, uh, you're super, you're a super humble guy, which is super cool. I mean, a lot of people in ultra four are, you know, like I said, the birds of a feather flock together, but you know, from your humble beginnings in Alaska to, you know, a house with no electricity, but running water, if you only turn the generator on to, you know, drilling, you know, core wells all over, all over the world and some crazy stories there to now uh, living in park city with your own ski lifts in your backyard and racing at the upper echelon of off-road rock sports is super inspirational, man. From me, I'm sure from other people, but for me, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with me. I had, I had no idea you were as cool and as awesome, uh, as you are. I'd heard stories, but now I know for myself and hopefully now everyone else will hear this as well. I caught you the most <laughs> well, mysterious man in ultra four. Well, hopefully I don't think I'm too mysterious anymore. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm just a normal guy. I just, you know, I just love racing just the whole atmosphere of, you know, competition has just what has driven me my whole life. And 
We're going down that road. We're just trying to win races. You know, here in a couple weeks, eight weeks, six weeks, however many weeks it is now, because it's coming up so fast, uh, Hammers, I'll stop in and see you. We'll have some waters together or some coffees if it's really early in the morning, and we'll figure it out, man. Paul, thank you for coming on the Talent Tank. I appreciate you. All right. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. All right, guys. I hope you guys appreciate this episode. Uh, man, Paul Horschel. All right. We're out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.